Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I do think the economy, though, can support decent wage increases, and I think it's really a question that the economy can't afford to not support those sort of wage increases for workers, though. So we have this situation where corporate Australia's profits are ballooning. They don't seem to be showing any restraint. Um, so absolutely, the economy can afford decent increases for working people. And so, yeah, absolutely support increases of that nature. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent, and this is the Australian Politics Podcast. In today's episode, we're looking at where we're up to with industrial relations laws under the Albanese government. We'll be talking about the Secure Jobs Better Pay legislation, which passed last year and came into full effect this week, which allows employees at different employers to bargain together. And we'll be talking about the new Same Job, Same Pay legislation, which is to ensure labour hire workers are paid the same as those directly employed by a business. At the same time, we've had the Fair Work Commission ordering a rise in the minimum wage. The Reserve Bank has also increased interest rates, and that has led to a lively debate about what is driving inflation, whether wages need to be restrained in order to prevent adding to inflation, or whether profits might be to blame for this high inflation moment. In this episode, we're talking about industrial relations reform and the cost of living crisis with two key groups, unions and small businesses. First, we have Zach Smith, the National Secretary of the CFMEU's Construction Division. Welcome, Zach. Thanks for coming. Uh, good day, Paul. How are you going? Well, we'll get on to the same jobs, same pay bill a little later. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask about the government's Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill, which passed last year but came into full effect this week uh, with the sections on multi-employer bargaining. Is that going to change how the construction union approaches bargaining at all? No, I wouldn't anticipate so. I mean, as you'll remember, Paul, from that tranche of legislation, the construction industry was excluded from multi-employer bargaining. Um, what is significant about that piece of legislation for construction workers, however, is the removal of the ABCC and, and the building code. Um, this was the industrial relations architecture of the last government and it was deliberately designed to hold back construction workers, their unions, and specifically uh, when you look at the building code, designed to limit the ability of construction workers to bargain um, for decent wages and protections at work. So the removal of the ABCC um, and of that architecture from our industrial relations landscape is something that we absolutely welcomed and so did construction workers across this country. And it will mean that uh, workers in our sector 
have got a greater ability to get uh, wages and protections in the workplace um, that they, they deserve. And it's important to note that, you know, when we talk about the cost of living crisis and when we talk about the inflationary pressure that workers are facing, a strong industrial relations system that allows workers to bargain and doesn't put ideological impediments like the ABCC in their way is a really important uh, facet of how you deal with cost of living and those sort of pressures that workers are facing. Mm-hmm. Would you push to be added to multi-employer bargaining in future or, or are the current rules uh, sufficient to, to represent your, your members in bargaining? We don't like the fact that the construction industry is treated separately to other sectors when it comes to, to bargaining laws. However, we don't have any intention uh, at this point to be pushing government on that issue or pushing to have that restriction overturned or that exclusion overturned, I should say. Obviously, uh, we don't want the construction industry or our members to be treated differently to other workers. Um, The mantra of our union um, in campaigning against the ABCC was one rule for all. Um, We still think that's a principle that should hold true. However, uh, as we sit here today, we don't have a plan um, to be pushing government um, uh, to, to overturn that exclusion. The RBA Governor Phil Lowe has suggested that wage rises should stay in the 3 to 4% range uh, to, to not add to inflation. You've been quite unapologetic about seeking uh, more than 5% for your members over a number of years. But what, can you explain why you pursue claims of that size? Well, I think we need to unpack Philip Lowe's comments and I suppose the logic behind why he makes those comments. And that really goes to our criticism of Philip Lowe and of the Reserve Bank's um, policy in, in rate setting, especially over the last two years. And it's really a criticism, I suppose, of where monetary policy sits currently in Australia and a lot of um, Western countries. Uh, what we know is that we are facing a cost of living crisis and an inflationary crisis. Um, our members know that more than anyone else and working people know that more than anyone else in this country because they're the ones that are dealing with it in the supermarkets, um, paying utilities and meeting the rising cost of um, putting a roof over your head. But this inflationary crisis is being caused in the main uh, by corporate profit-taking and corporate profiteering. The Australia Institute did a very good report, um, released a very good report last year, which showed that 69% of the inflationary increases we've had beyond what the Reserve Bank predicted is caused by corporate profit takings. That's, you know, in excess of two thirds. Uh, The OECD, um, hardly what people would call uh, a hotbed of socialist thinking, uh, backed that research in and also said that business is causing the inflationary crisis just in the last few weeks. So we have this mountain of evidence. This isn't just me as a, a union official saying this, we have this mountain of evidence Uh, out there saying corporate profit-taking is leading to these spikes in inflation that we're experiencing now. So we just think it's deluded and out of touch for someone like uh, Philip Lowe to then come out and say, well, the fix to this is to increase interest rates. So that's going to be disproportionately felt by working people. But then at the same time, working people should also absorb more pain to fix this crisis, a crisis which they haven't made, Uh, and show wage restraint. What we know is that when the Fair Work Commission increased minimum wages uh, by over 5% last year to reflect inflation, it had a negligible impact on uh, inflation moving forward. So what he's saying isn't borne out by the facts, 
what he's saying is dangerous neoliberal ideology because what it means is that working people go further and further behind and wages won't catch up. And in the face of this evidence, the only conclusion that you can really draw is that Philip Lowe is sort of trotting out the same neoliberal tied arguments rather than saying we need to have a more equitable redistribution of wealth um, and that is a way of dealing with inflationary pressure which doesn't mean that working people have to be continually belted over their head, both with interest rate increases and then having the top end of town tell them uh, that they need to show restraint at the bargaining table. Yeah, I should note the RBA and Treasury line up on the other side of that argument that they don't agree that uh, profits are driving uh, inflation. But OECD, you're right, is good good support for the Australia Institute position, and I'm I'm looking forward to to, <laughs> to seeing them asked about that in future Senate committees and and press conferences. So, do you think the broader economy uh, could afford for everyone to be asking for pay rises like that, though? Or is the construction sector particularly productive and that's why you feel justified in asking for that? Or do you have a view on on whether the rest of of workers should be asking for it? I mean, what happens in other industries will be a question for the unions that are um, active in those industries. I certainly supported uh, our lowest paid workers being those workers who are on the minimum wage or award-reliant workers who are at the lowest pay levels, getting an increase in matched inflation, which is in excess of 5%, certainly supported it for those workers. I do think the economy, though, can support decent wage increases, and I think it's really a question that the economy can't afford to not support those sort of wage increases for workers, though. You know, we have a look at what's happening across the corporate sector. We have the big four banks posting profits in excess of $16 billion, which is absolutely mind-blowing when you think of it. The Commonwealth Bank alone posting more than $5 billion, whilst at the same time uh, we're having an argument about a $10 billion housing fund for some of our most vulnerable in society. The banks are posting, you know, more than 150% of that in their profits. The supermarkets have really taken profiteering off this the COVID crisis to a new level and over the period of the last three years have increased their profits to 26% in the case of um, Coles and 30% in the case of Woolworths. That's their profit margins that they're recording now, which, you know, if that doesn't qualify as a super profit, I really don't know what does. And they're exploiting what is a market inefficiency um, where we have two companies that control the market and they're controlling the market not for luxury items, not for items that people could do without, but for everyday goods, for food, for the essentials that people need to live. So we have this situation where corporate Australia's profits are ballooning. They don't seem to be showing any restraint. Um, So absolutely, the economy can afford decent increases for working people. But I think the question is, how do we, you know, not have those increases for working people, you know? They're only going to go further and further behind. And so... Yeah, absolutely, support increases of that nature. Yeah, and I'll note for listeners that the national minimum wage for the tens of thousands paid that way went up 8.6%. For the more than 2 million people whose pay is set by awards, it went up by 5.75%. So I take from your comments you're supportive of that. But uh, after that, uh, when interest rates were raised for the 12th time, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry said that this was the rate rise brought to you by the ACTU, basically blaming unions for their claim in the national minimum wage case. Um, do you want to respond to that at all? I mean, of course they're going to say that. It's their members that are driving up cost of living. Of course they're going to try and deflect and throw it back on working people. It's a very insincere statement. They know, I'm certain they know, 
that it's a statement not borne out by the facts, depriving the lowest paid workers in this country an increase to match cost of living at this point in time uh, where we have cost of living going through the roof is just cruel. It's a shameful statement on their part, but it's unsurprising that they'd want to deflect attention from the fact that their membership, the big businesses of Australia, corporate Australia, are the ones really driving up profits. Um, I'm not seeing any anyone on their side of the table suggest that they should show restraint on prices uh, or on corporate profit-taking, rather they rather beat down on uh, working people and, in this case, rather cruelly, our lowest-paid workers in Australia. Hmm. The Albanese government has been consulting on uh, the same job, same pay legislation to be introduced in the, the later half of this year uh, so that labour hire uh, workers are paid the same as uh, directly hired employees. Can you explain a bit about what that policy would mean uh, in the construction sector? Look, in like the construction sector, like a lot of sectors in our economy, um, Labour hire is prevalent. Um, there are businesses in our sector uh, and, you know, across the economy that have built a business model on exploiting labour hire workers, um, paying labour hire workers lower than what they'd pay direct employees. And so to my mind, putting aside the scare campaigns of big business, which uh, I think in the main are fairly, you know, vacuous and, you know, hyperbolic and, you know, really a scare campaign. It's really about two things to my mind. Firstly, it's about fairness. I think it's, you know, there's no probably no greater expression of Australian egalitarianism than this idea that if you do the same work, you should be entitled to at least the same minimum rates of pay. And you have situations uh, in the construction industry, in other industries where you have two workers working side by side, performing essentially the same duties but in some cases, they could be getting as much as, you know, $10 now less than the direct hired counterpart. So it's about fairness. And I also think it's about closing a loophole. And, you know, like I said, there are companies in the construction industry and other industries that have built business models on exploiting labour hire workers. And when it comes to a loophole, there's probably no bigger loophole currently in our industrial relations system than this idea that an employer can have minimum rates and conditions, whether set through an enterprise agreement or other mechanisms, that they pay their direct employees, but then they can go and undermine the job security of those direct employees uh, and exploit vulnerable workers, often who are employed through casual and you know, itinerant and insecure work arrangements through labour hire companies to you know produce a bigger profit margin. So, you know, it's about fairness, it's about closing a loophole. And I really think that the scare campaigns of um big business adjust that and they don't bear out the truth of what's happening on the ground. Yes, I was going to mention employer groups have come out swinging uh, against this policy. Their ads uh, suggest that you won't be able to pay people higher if they have more experience or if they work harder or longer. The ads depict a diligent tradie on a work site with a colleague slacking off watching videos on his phone. You know, what's the tactic here? Well, the tactic is to preserve a loophole which is worth probably billions for some of these businesses. That's the strategy here. It's a scare campaign. They're trying to con working people into believing that same job, same pay is somehow going to prejudice them when really it's an absolute falsehood. There isn't any notion in the the concept of same job, same pay, which means that a boss can't pay a worker above an agreement rate if they wish to reward them for you know, whatever other skill or attribute or talent that they believe they have. What it's saying is where there are minimum rates of pay in a workplace, 
that people performing the same job should be paid to the same minimum rates of pay. So it's an absolute ludicrous argument from them, but it's not, again, surprising that big business are running these arguments. Um, It is a scare campaign. They are worried about this loophole being closed. They are worried because there are businesses out there making money off the back of labour hire workers who are getting treated like second-class workers on work sites all around this country. And so they've got a big vested interest in trying to protect the current racket, uh, and that's what it is. And so uh, this is the sort of legislation that needs to pass. Um, disappointing that the, the the business lobbies have taken this approach, but, you know, I suppose when you have a look what's at stake for some of their members, not surprising. Mm. You've been quite a vocal participant in the debate about the Housing Australia Future Fund, uh, which aims to invest $10 billion and then use the earnings of up to $500 million a year to build social and affordable housing. How do you want the government to lift its ambition on housing and what do you make of the impasse between the Greens and Labor on this bill at the moment? Yeah, so we have been very vocal in the housing debate. Um, Our union has a proud history of contributing to the housing debate in this country, and it's a legacy that I'm proud to continue. We have not been critical of the architecture of the legislation itself or, you know, the idea of having a future fund. There are other countries that use a sovereign wealth fund to deliver housing. That in and of itself wasn't our critique. Our critique was the ambition. Uh, of the Housing Australia Future Fund. We want to see more money invested into housing. What we know is that we need somewhere in the vicinity of $290 billion over the next two decades or about $15 billion a year to deal with this crisis, and it is a crisis. Um, And we wanted to see a greater level, we do want to see a greater level of investment from the federal government in, in social and affordable housing. That done through the half model is not something that that we oppose. Our issue was a one of ambition and wanting to increase the ambition of the federal government. And when I get around the country, I think it's important to note this, when I get around the country and talk to our members and working people uh, all across the country, in every state, uh, housing is up there in the top issues that workers are raising with me. This is, um, really is an absolutely key issue that um, working people are telling me, our members are telling me, is a massive issue for them. And then now we have situations where people are paying in excess of 50% of their take-home pay to pay for mortgages and rents. So we're not just talking about an issue, you know, I think some people sort of compartmentalise it and go, well, social and affordable housing is an issue that affects the unemployed or people outside of the workforce. Well, it's not the case. There are plenty of people that are holding down full-time jobs that are relying on uh, affordable social housing, um, plenty of work, people that are holding down full-time jobs that are facing housing insecurity. So this is an issue that goes, you know, much further than what people, I think a lot of people appreciate. In terms of where the legislation currently sits, um, we've had a number of constructive conversations with Minister Collins, who's the Federal Housing Minister. I think those have been productive. I think she's a good housing uh, minister who's really committed to trying to address this issue of social and affordable housing. We will continue to campaign, though, for more money for housing. We, you know, as a union, believe this is the role of progressive trade unions like ourselves is to to be out there championing the cause of of housing. And so we're going to continue the arguments publicly to say that there should be more money invested in the Housing Australia Future Fund um, when it's finally stood up. And there's, you know, a number of different ideas that we said should be on the table when we talk about where does does that money coming from. Uh, It's a question of priorities, but we've said there's any number of policy responses that should be considered and be part of that mix, Paul. Um, 
you know, and we will continue to be advocating and fighting in that space for increased funding. So to invest more in the half in future, is it time to pass the bill, stand it up and then look to do more in future, do you think? Yeah, it's getting it's getting to that point. I mean, our, um, our, our one concern with the current design of the legislation was this limit on the annual distribution from the fund to social housing. Um, we have expressed concerns that the design of the legislation as it stands is, is that uh, the cap would be set at half a billion dollars a year. And I suppose what we've been seeking is a approach there where that cap can be increased as aspirations increase. So as we as we make the argument, if we can get more money into the fund that, you know, we don't have these arbitrary caps setting the amount of distribution that can be made from the future fund each year. So that's a concern for us still with the design of the legislation. Like I said, Paul, we don't have a fundamental objection to the half. Uh, our issue is or our campaign is around uh, the aspirations of housing in this country and, you know, trying to get more money dedicated to this very important um, issue. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to ask, please, you're relatively new in the role. Do you have uh, ambitions to reposition the union at all? I'm thinking in terms of playing a bigger role in internal ALP politics or addressing some of the issues at state level, noting that some uh, officials have been in the news for the wrong reasons. Certainly, look, you know, as a new leader, I'm going to bring a new sort of approach um, to this role. Um, we have had a proud history of fighting um, on issues like housing, on social justice. Um, we're the union of green bands. Um, we're the union that banned asbestos-containing materials. Um, we're now part of an amalgamated union that has um, embraced the proud history of the MUA, who have got a really, a really strong history of fighting for social justice. So... Those things are a part of the DNA of the CFMEU of the MUA. They're part of the DNA of our union. So these are the sort of things that our union has always done. Now, what has happened over the last 10 to 15 years as a result of sort of a sustained attack on our union but also on our officials is that a lot of the press coverage, and, you know, this is, a, this is deliberate, um, you know, we need to sort of acknowledge that, has been focused on... Issues, you know, um, relating to individuals, relating to their conduct. Um, you know, we've seen stuff where there was a great media, you know, sort of sensation when John and Sean, John Secker and Sean Reader, that is, were prosecuted for blackmail, charges which just collapsed at the committal stage. Similarly with Jason O'Mara on, you know, charges that should have never been brought by the ACCC. And, you know, again, they collapsed at committal, which is a very rare thing to occur. And so we've had these sustained attacks on our union and our officials, and that's sort of taken a lot of the energy and distracted away from these important fights that the union's always been having. So I'm keen for the union, yes, to be out there pursuing a tough, progressive agenda for working people, not just industrially, but also politically, also socially. I I certainly have big aspirations that our union has a lot to offer in the policy debates which affect workers in this country. Um, beyond just the realms of wages and conditions. And you're seeing that now with us taking up the mantle on investment into social and affordable housing. You're seeing that now with us taking up the fight on the scourge of engineered stone and how it's killing workers. But you're right in saying that there's been a sort of concerted campaign from conservative political forces and their friends in the media, if I can say it, to distract from 
to discredit the union, but also to distract from the important work we are doing. So I am very keen to reposition in that sense and to really highlight the contribution we're making to, to policy debates on behalf of workers across this country. And just to come to the other part of your question there, that's not just in the media, but it's also within the ALP. We are affiliated to the ALP, very deliberately affiliated to the ALP, so we can pursue within those political forums policies that benefit our members and workers more broadly in Australia. I don't think we'll get time to uh, debate the rights and wrongs of uh, individual uh, officials' conduct or, 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 or the media coverage of it, but I appreciate you addressing it and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Zach. Thanks, Paul. And now to get a small business perspective, let's welcome Matthew Addison, Chair and Director of Cosboa. Well, I, I want to talk about uh, the same job, same pay bill, but I, I might first start with uh, the, the first bit of industrial relations legislation the Albanese government got through, uh, which is the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill, passed last year but came into full effect this week with the new multi-employer bargaining changes. Could I ask what you've been doing to get members ready for those new bargaining rules and whether they've had any experience of them yet? Really interesting in the small business sector, Paul. We're not hearing much about it in our sector at all. Um, some of the members that are closer to it have got their IR teams very much watching for activity uh, in the workplaces. But as I speak, uh, the impact on the small business sector is quite minimal. And part of that is it is a really com complex set of arrangements. So it's actually added complexity into the workplace relations system. It's added complexity for small business. And because we're not seeing a productivity win out of what those measures brought forward, certainly employers and businesses aren't running towards it. Before the Jobs and Skills Summit, uh, COSBOA under uh, previous leadership supported options for multi-employer bargaining and that sort of opened the door for the Albanese government to say, ah, even some businesses are on board for these changes. Um, do, do you think that was, uh, that was a mistake and sort of gave them permission uh, to, to make these changes that in the end uh, may or may not be favourable to small businesses? Uh, Paul, it's interesting, what is it, five, six months, ten months later, uh, the way you've articulated that, the agreement Cosboa had was a an agreement to have discussions about what multi-employer bargaining, what single-employer bargaining might look like going forward. It was an agreement to have discussions and we didn't agree with what legislation ended up being tabled. We didn't agree with exactly how it's been positioned. What our agreement was, was to have discussions and that was what came out of the Jobs and Skills Summit. Uh, unfortunately, the world moved rather quickly over the months that followed and that brought that legislation to the table. Mm. This time uh, you're in lockstep with other employer groups uh, all raising concerns about the same job, same pay uh, reforms and you're, you're muscling up in, in a, a series of ads about that reform. What exactly are your concerns about it? What we're concerned about is that the language that has been used today is all-encompassing, very broad terms, very... Um, all the inclusive language that means any small business that is a service provider could be caught up in this concept of same job, same pay. 
And when we sat down as COSBOA with our memberships and our IR expert panel, we had a look at the articulation from the government, we looked at the consultation papers, and there was a lot of fear for its impact on small business. We then started comparing notes with the other employer organisations, and they're all sitting there with exactly the same reaction. So when we've read the information that is available to us as organisations, we have got real concerns about what is the actual problem the government is trying to solve and can we target the solution to solve that problem? Uh, what the campaign has already achieved in the last few days is a narrowing and an identification of what the problem the government might actually be seeking to solve. Uh, and we're part of the consultation process. The consultation continues. Our it, there's some good steps in that. There are some steps that we would like to see added to the consultation program. Uh, there's more consultation to happen and we have commitments from the government about that. Well, let's talk about that narrowing. Uh, now, I accept point taken that the consultation paper was broad, but uh, Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke has since clarified that it's uh, same job, same pay for labour hire workers, and the comparison is uh, to directly hired employees on enterprise agreements only. So is that some comfort that they're not trying to compare uh, with uh, employees that are on individual contracts and say same job, same pay with people on you know a, a higher level of pay because of an individual contract? Yeah, two, two answers, Paul. On the positive side, that narrowing that we've received from Minister Burke in the, in the last few days is a, is a positive articulation of what is the problem. Now, let's make sure that the solution actually fixes that problem and doesn't have unintended consequences. Uh, the second part of that becomes into what are the definitions here? What is the definitions of labour hire? Um, also, we can't take same job, same pay as an isolated issue because we also have what's employee like. Now, employee like opens up the casuals definition, the contractors definition, the gig workers. It opens up other spheres. And to your previous uh, question point, we've also got the multi-employer bargaining or single interest stream bargaining going on which is putting an EBA pretty much into every workplace is part of that vision. Now, if I bring all of these parts of the puzzle together, again, you get quite concerned on behalf of business. All of these pictures, what problem are we trying to solve? Let's make sure the definitions are specific and targeted solutions. Now, I think the reference to employee-like work uh, is uh, the Labor's plan to regulate the, the gig economy, which is, is coming in a similar time frame but a different piece of legislation. How, how much detail are you getting uh, about uh, what's involved in that? Look, even during this week in discussions, we have asked for more definition. When they say gig economy, what are they talking about and what is their problem they've identified and then what is their solution? We're looking for more definition, Paul. We're not there yet. Now, does it follow from the fact that they've narrowed the proposal that you're that you're less concerned? Uh, and does that mean you, the employer groups might take the foot off the the gas of the of the ad campaign, or or does that show the great um, success of having come out so hard and and you're emboldened by that? What's what's your approach going to be from here? The campaign has had 
positive impact. We've got some narrowing. There is more to do. So there's more work. We don't have the detail yet. And the consultation process, uh, I would hope, goes into a policy philosophy discussion of here's the problem, here's the targeted solution. Then we have a technical discussion to make sure we don't have unintended consequences or a broadening of the impact. There is more work to do, Paul. We don't see us taking the foot off the accelerator at this point. Just to put a more cynical uh, view, though, uh, is the campaign trying to turn the public against uh, the same job, same pay policy too early before it's even clear uh, what's in and what's out? You know, is is it fair to depict, uh, you know, the the honest tradie um, uh, upset that he can't get more pay than the the, the person shirking and, and slacking off looking at their phone when that might be no part of of what's actually uh, in the bill that comes before Parliament? Is that a fair thing to do? But what's going to end up in that bill if we don't raise the issues around the language that has been used to date? So we can only respond to the information that's been provided, the way that issues are articulated. As I said, all the organisations independently had come to very similar conclusions and when we compared notes, realised we were all on the same concerns So I'm going to say, Paul, I understand the cynical question, but no, I don't believe we have jumped too early. We are seeking clarification. We're raising issues with the language being used, the breadth of the impact. And from a small business point of view, I'm going to say, Paul, we're looking for flexible, positive, productive workplaces. And small business owners typically have a very positive workplace with their employees, with the others that help support their businesses. We're looking for a future workplace environment that continues that. And when we hear words, language, approaches that are really going to challenge the ability for a small business owner to have that positive workplace, we're going to raise our concerns. Let's move on to the minimum wage decision that the Fair Work Commission made on the 2nd of June that will apply from July, uh, which was an 8.6% increase for the tens of thousands on the national minimum, uh, but then 5.75% increase for the more than 2 million uh, workers whose pay is set by an award. Um, did you think that was uh, too much too far? And uh, what evidence did you know, Cosboa give uh, before the Commission came to that decision? We would consider those rates uh, to be higher than what we asked for and asked for publicly. So we aligned very similarly to the narrative and commentary that came out of the other organisations around that 4% and that 4% including the increase that was already legislated in the superannuation guarantee contribution by employers. So 3.5% plus the half percent super totalling 4 was the positioning that Cosboa gave. We didn't argue before the Commission because uh, Bower is not a registered organisation in, in that proposal and others do a, a better job, more well-researched job in terms of providing that argument to the Commission. But on behalf of small business, we sat back and said, look, we do have inflation. We do want to work with our workers. So, yes, recognising that an increase was required. The rates that have come down... Uh, Small business are now sitting there going, what does my next 12 months look like? If I've got a 8% on those on minimum wage and a 5.75% on those on other award-based wages, 
And Paul, in the SME sector, when the Commission comes out with a, a rate, the 5.75, whether you're on an award or not, that becomes the employee expectation. So every small business is having these discussions with their workers and the workers are walking in with those discussions with, hang on, the world went to 5.75, whether you're on an award or not. Small business have to work out where are they going to fund that from? How do they fund a 6% increase in their wage bill? And we've got to look at, you know, is that a revenue impact? So what impacts revenue? It's either my activity level or it's my price. Am I going to increase my activity level this year? How do I increase my activity level? If it's price, we have that wage price inflation spiral going on. Uh, Businesses also look at, funnily enough, all their other costs, their direct item costs coming in. Well, I'm not talking to any business sector at the moment that's saying their direct cost of uh, supplies, be that goods or be that services, is going down. Everything is going up, be that imports or be that Australian provided. Overheads are going up. We all know the energy, insurance, the rent bills, they're all going up. Small businesses sitting there going, well, how much am I earning as a business owner? And there's some good stats starting to come out that typically small business owners themselves, they're actually earning below minimum wage. That, and so they've got to go, well, what do I do to be sustainable myself, let alone sustain my business and pay my workers a fair, equitable, positive amount? We do have a set of economic circumstances that are really tough for small business at the moment. Uh, we need to make profit in order to invest back into our business. So if we're looking to buy a new piece of equipment to make us more productive, if we're looking to digitise a process, we actually need to make profit in order to invest in that capital. There seems to be a bit of uh, rhetoric around that, you know, corporate profit is bad. Well, if corporates don't make a profit, they can't buy that next new thing to deliver better services to the public. So it's not just about costs of doing business. It's also about raising enough funds so that we can continue to improve our business. And that leads us to that. How do we improve productivity? We have to invest back in our business. We can't invest back if we don't make profit in the first place. The RBA raised interest rates and uh, the Chamber of Commerce uh, blamed that squarely on unions for their for their wage demands. Jim Chalmers says that it's not fair to punish workers for uh, a, a problem they didn't cause because workers' wages didn't cause the uh, inflation to begin with. What do you uh, say to that view that wage suppression at this point is, is punishment for something that workers didn't cause? Look, I certainly wouldn't articulate it that way. Small business want to pay their workers fairly and equitably. We want to recognise the economic times that individuals are in as well and that their cost of living has gone up. So what is an appropriate way that we can be sustainable but fairly and equitably reward good workers, especially those that are hard workers, uh, the wage, price, inflation spiral, I think it is one of the contributing factors to our inflation position and the interest rate management by the RBA as the economic lever they've got. 
they're still pulling it because inflation is too high, Paul, and I don't think anybody is saying that. And it's a circular argument because when inflation's up, prices go up, what do I do in business to respond to that price going up? I've got to think about my own price. Mm. Now, I know you've um, defended profit on the basis that the businesses need that to reinvest. I wonder what you make of the debate that's been going on between the Australia Institute and unions on one side and the Reserve Bank, the Treasury and business groups on the other side uh, about whether profit itself is a, is a driver of inflation. Because this week, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, who are hardly uh, raging lefties, uh, weighed in and seemed to suggest that profit might be. Uh, do, do you have a view on that? I, I think there's many, many factors into where profit goes. And as I was alluding to earlier, profit goes into reinvesting in the business, be it capital acquisition, be it innovation, be it how to be an entrepreneur and doing some development work. Profit is also, if we talk the very big end of town, we talk the, the listed companies, um, if they don't make profit, they don't pay a reward or a dividend back to their shareholders. There's not a uh, remuneration going back to their owners of the business. Our super fund industry gets a lot of reward out of dividends, out of big companies making profit. If they don't make profit, they can't pay that. The whole economy actually works, revolves, the investment environment works, revolves around corporates need to make profit. I'm not um, in favour of some of those opinions that have come out and talked about um, is it profit gouging they've, they've used as the word. Back to my earlier comments, Paul, businesses need to make profit for a number of reasons. Some of that is return to investors and if we stripped all the return to investors out of our marketplace, well, we've got a whole lot of other economic problems going on. Business in Australia needs more investment to improve our productivity, to work out the way forward out of the economic situation we're in at the moment. Now, after that uh, interest rate rise, everyone is scrimping and, and saving. And uh, I mean, the hope that if that slows down the economy it involves that it's going to hit consumer spending, you know, retail, hospitality and other small and medium businesses. Is that just the price of fighting inflation or is there a risk that the RBA has gone too hard in, in clobbering the economy? It is a factor in managing the economy, managing the inflation rate. From my um, non-researched point of view, I'm not criticising where the RBA is sitting at the moment. Um, I think they've got a lever to pull and they're, they're pulling that lever um, with appropriate research. There are other factors that we have to take into account. Last one, I wanted to ask, uh, Nationals leader David Littleproud uh, came on the podcast and he talked about competition law reforms, particularly in the in the uh, grocery sector. He wanted a compulsory grocery code of conduct, penalties of up to $10 million for misconduct breaches involving competition law, uh, and even uh, forced divestiture powers uh, to break up uh, businesses that are too big. I, I wonder, um, from a small business perspective, is there common cause between uh, uh, small business suppliers and, and working people in trying to uh, achieve competition law reform because Little Proud was reaching out to Labor to say that the Nationals and Labor uh, could, could, could enact that together. Do, do you see common cause between small businesses and working people in trying to improve competition? Without ticking some of those, those specific line items you raised there, 
there is clearly a power imbalance between a, a big court, big conglomerate um, supermarket chain and the small ones. There, there's a power imbalance even between suppliers and, and the big purchaser. There is a power imbalance. We would reflect that the ACCC has been on a good journey. Some of the recent reform in the ACCC space um, has addressed issues that we have raised with them. Uh, the government has backed some of that reform and we're quite supportive of, of that reform. Uh, we do think there are issues that we are pleased that the ACCC um, has a eye on and a line of sight on, there is more work to do to ensure that something as essential as food supply through our grocery outlets remains um, affordable and remains consistent supply lines. So there is more work to do and really pleased that the ACCC has a radar um, on that area. Let's hope we can get uh, more competitive prices without it uh, clobbering uh, workers' retirement savings in their, in, in their super. I'm sure there's a balance there as well. Um, all, <laughs> all right. Thank you very much for joining us, Matthew. Thanks, Paul. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Camilla Hannon and Alison Chan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Paul Karp and I'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 